All right, everyone, if you will, take out a Bible with me and turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33, we'll start in verse 1 here in just a minute. Exodus 33, verse 1. Now, for those of you who have experienced this, do you remember what it was like to be in love? To be in love? Now, I don't mean that you stop being in love if you're married to your spouse. You stop being in love after a certain time and you're just never in love again. What I mean is that infatuation stage. You remember that? The infatuation stage where you couldn't stop thinking about one another. Where you woke up thinking about that other person. And you went to bed thinking about that other person. And you daydreamed about them just because it made you happy. Right? The infatuation stage. The stage that I try to make sure that all of my my premarital couples are past, actually. So that they can have a realistic picture of what they're getting into in marriage. But you, you, were just, you were just so consumed with thoughts for that person. Do you remember, those of you who listen to classic rock, you remember the, the Blue Oyster Cult song, I'm Burning For You? You remember that song? Burn out the day. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Well, just uh, this always reminds me of Jennifer and I, every now and then when we get in the car, we play the Name That Artist game, because my dad used to play that with me all the time when I was little. And Jen's getting pretty good at, at it. And a while back, it was Blue Oyster Cult. It was Name That Artist. And she said, Blue Oyster Boys, maybe? And I was like, you're close. Close enough, right? That's it. So they're always the Blue Oyster Boys to us. But you're, you're consumed. You're, you're burning in, in, your, in your heart. I'm not talking about lust. We're talking about just that, that passion that you have in your mind for that person. You're talking, you're talking about them. You're thinking about them. You, you just can't forget about them every minute of every day. Well, what if we could have that for God? And what if it never went away? Do you think that's possible? We could have that kind of burning passion, infatuation even, with God. And what if it never went away? Exodus 33, I want to take you through our text. Exodus 33, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have Brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now we're going to jump down to verse 12. I'll tell you in a moment why we're skipping verses 7 through 11. Verse 12, it says, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways 
that I may know you, in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Now, back to what I said, verses 7 through 11. We skipped over that part. We're going to cover that, Lord willing, next week. The reason we skipped over that is because verses 1 through 6 and verses 12 through 16 kind of, at least in my mind, talk about the same thing, whereas verses 7 through 11 kind of go off onto a different subject, a little bit of a tangent, if you will. And so we're going to cover verses 7 through 11 next week, Lord willing. But let me set the scene for a second here. They're going to the promised land, verses 1 through 3. The promised land. God says it's time to set out. It's time to go to the land that I swore I would give to Abraham. Remember that? Abraham was taken up from a land that he lived in. God God led him to a place that he did not know and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And it's going to be a wonderful land. A land flowing with milk and honey, it says. And he reiterates that promise to Abraham's son Isaac, to Isaac's son Jacob. And it's a promise for all the Israelites that God will give them this promised land. But then comes, in verse 3, the disastrous word from God. He says, go up to that land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. I will not go up among you. And that word right there is the driver to everything that we're going to talk about in our sermon today. God says, go to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. And specifically, I want to focus in on Moses's reaction to God's word here. Moses's reaction, because it tells us so much of Moses and so much of who we should be as Christians and as God-pursuing people. First, I want you to see Moses's desire to know God specifically from verse 13. Verse 13, Moses had a desire to know God. He found his deepest delight in knowing God. Look at verse 13 with me. Moses says, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you. Show me your ways that I may know you. What a wonderful example of heartfelt God-pursuing prayer that we should seek to have in our own lives and in our own hearts. Show me your ways, God, that I may know you. You guys are probably going to get tired of hearing me say this, if you're not already tired of hearing me say this, but I will never stop. My goal for each and every one of you is that you would have a hunger and a thirst for God that would consume everything in your life. A hunger and a thirst for God and for his word that would be the driver for everything you do. Perhaps no other book besides the Bible in the last few years in my life has influenced me more than A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God. It's a book that's about exactly that. It's a good title. It's, it's the pursuit of God. That's what he's talking about. Pursuing God, going after God, wanting more of God. And in that book, A.W. Tozer talks of a certain kind of person that when he meets them, their souls recognize one another. 
a certain kind of person. It's, it's very rare, but when he meets one, their souls recognize one another. And he called them children of the burning heart. It was almost his name for like a, a secret society, although it's not secret at all. But he called them children of the burning heart. People who have this burning within their hearts to know God more and more. And they will never stop pursuing him. People who find their greatest joy and deepest satisfaction in communing with God. And he said when he meets one of them, immediately their souls recognize one another. And they find a deeper fellowship than most other people that he encounters and interacts with. Children of the burning heart. Let me ask you this this morning. Do you have a heart that burns to know God? Do you have a heart that burns to know God? Or are you just here? Do you long to know God and to have more of God? Or are you just here waiting to to go do something else? Let's be honest with ourselves this morning. What is the driving force in our minds and in our hearts every day as we wake up? Is it God or is it something else? Are we here right now so that we can have more of God? Or are we really just waiting for something else later? Are we using this as a means to an end, which we'll talk about more here in just a second? Do you have a burning heart to know God? Because if you discover what this is like, if you catch it, it will change your life forever. And it will give you a happiness that you have never known before, but a happiness that you were created for. So let's take a step back then and say this. Let's say you're sitting there this morning and you're saying, I see that. I want that. But I don't have it. If I'm honest with myself, I don't have it. How do I get it? How do I get that burning heart? Well, look at verse 13 with me again. Let's read it one more time, the middle of it. Moses says, please show me now your ways that I may know you. Show me your ways that I may know you. Moses wanted to know God's ways so that he could come to know God. And at that point, at this point in history, Moses had no other way to understand God's ways than to go directly to God and have him reveal himself to Moses directly. He didn't have another way to do this. He had to go to God directly. David asked the same thing of God in Psalm 86:11 where he said, "Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth." And then he says, "Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name." The same exact thing that Moses is saying essentially. "Teach me your ways so that I could have a heart that fears your name so that I could know you. But they really only had the the direct revelation of God that God would give them. But in our day, God has shown us his ways. And it's right there for anyone who would go after it. If you want to know God in his ways, if you want to get that burning heart for God, read your Bible. Read your Bible. That is the way that you know God. And that is the way that you cultivate this burning with inside of you. That is at the same time so, so driving and so satisfying. At the same time 
You, you can almost never satisfy it. It's always there. It's always increasing. There's always a hunger. And yet you, you satisfy it every time at the same time that the more you go to the word, the more you go to God, the more you drink, so to speak, the, the less satisfied you become, even as you get satisfaction. Does that make sense? It's not like every other desire that we have, every other bodily drive that we have. In all of the other bodily drives that we have, the, the more you get, the less you need, the less satisfied you are, the less, the, less, or the less hunger you have, so to speak. But with God, it's the exact opposite. With God, the, the more you get, the more you want. And so if you want to know God in his ways, read your Bible, brothers and sisters. Pick up God's word a little bit every day and seek God as you do. Don't just pick up the Bible to, to know more about the Bible. Don't just pick up the Bible so that you can find one answer to one little problem in your life. Pick up the word to know the one who gave it to us. Because this is the way that God gives us himself. He gives us himself in this word. And it's right there for anyone who would go after it. It's right there. He will give you himself in the proportion of your hunger and thirst for him. If you seek him with all your heart, he will make sure that, you are found, that he is found by you. If Moses had what we have, the completed Old and New Testament, I'm convinced he would have been reading and studying it every single day. That's the desire that he had to know God. But the great secret is you must spend time with God to cultivate your desire to know God. That's the great secret is you've got to get in it and discipline yourself to do it to cultivate that desire. Because there's going to be times where you don't want to. There's going to be times where you, you, you think you should read your Bible, but you don't want to. You want to reach a point to where you're just desperate for it, hungry for it, thirsty for it, and you want to go to it all the time. You can't wait, like David said in Psalm 42, when can I go and meet with God? You want to get to that point, but there's going to be times where you, honestly, you just won't want to. So you've got to discipline yourself. But the great secret is... When you spend time with God, he cultivates that desire. He cultivates that burning heart within you. And the more you get into it, the more you have it. And so if you get into the word consistently, he will begin to create inside of you a hunger and a thirst for him. And at the same time, he'll be satisfying that hunger and thirst and filling up your heart in a way you've never experienced before. So that it's a wonderful cycle. A wonderful, never-ending cycle of hungering and thirsting for God and then being satisfied and then hungering and thirsting for God and then being satisfied, never-ending. And so, brothers and sisters, pursue God with all your heart, like Moses. Pursue him with all your heart and he will reward you. He will reward you. That language is all throughout the Bible, but let me just quote to you one verse that says that exact thing. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in him. Delight yourself in knowing him, and he will satisfy your heart. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, what that doesn't mean is you come to God so that you can get other desires of your heart. We're going to talk about that here in just a second. But that's not what it means. What it means is when you delight yourself in the Lord... Your desires are lined up with his and he fills up your heart with the greatest desire that your heart actually has, whether you know it or not, which is him. Our hearts desire him above all else because he created us like that. He made us for himself. 
And as the, the great church father in the, I believe it was the fourth century, St. Augustine said, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so Moses had a desire to know God, but notice also Moses, Moses had a desire to be with God. A desire to be with God. Moses, and it seems even the people, wanted God more than his gifts. And this is kind of surprising knowing these people from what we have read. These Israelites, they are indeed stiff-necked, as God has said. But look at verse 4. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, it said they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. They mourned. You see, God, in that disastrous word that it's talking about, where he says, I won't go with you. God is offering the people the promised land without his presence. So I'm going to give you the promised land, but not my presence. He's offering to bless them without having a relationship with them. And the sad truth is, most people would take that deal in a heartbeat. Most people would say, yeah, I'll sign up for that. That's exactly what a lot of people want. The blessings of God without the relationship. The blessings of God without him getting in the way and messing everything up. Can I just have your blessings? Can I just have all the stuff that you can give? And as much as we've seen these Israelites already in chapter 32 reject God and disregard his glory, here they mourn to their credit. They mourn over this disastrous word. They don't say, we'll take it, deal. Let's go to the promised land. No, they mourn. Because God's presence won't go with them. And it says they remove their jewelry. The Lord actually told them to do that in verse 5. Take off your ornaments. And I think this is probably a symbolic way of them repenting before the Lord. Because if you remember, that great donation of jewelry is what they used to make the golden calf. And so taking off of this jewelry is kind of a way of saying, we want you more than anything else. Anything else. We've got all this extra jewelry from the Egyptians. That's where it came from. We want you, God. We don't want anything else, and we don't want to go after other gods. We're done with that. But notice, most of all, I think, most of all and, and most helpful to us is not the people's reaction, but Moses's in verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me. Moses's reaction to God and the, the, the disastrous word. Moses says to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Moses says to God, If your presence will not go with us, we don't want it. The promised land is nothing without you. You are what we want. Moses got it, you guys. He got it. He wants God more than anything. He wants God more than all of the gifts that God could give him. He wants God more than his gifts. Now, it's important to understand, brothers and sisters... That every gift of God is given to us to be enjoyed. It is not wrong to enjoy God's gifts. God has blessed us with so many things. Scripture tells us over and over again that our, our food is a blessing from God. The weather is a blessing and a gift from God. If we prosper, it's a gift from the Lord. All of our needs, a gift from the Lord. Friendship and fellowship and families Even a church family is a gift from God. It is not wrong to enjoy God's gifts. Don't go so far in that direction and be an ascetic 
and say it's, it's wrong to enjoy good things that God created as good. It's not. But we must not let our joy terminate on God's gifts. Because if we do, we run the risk of becoming idolaters. We run the risk of becoming idolaters. Not worshiping a golden calf, but worshiping the things that God made. Desiring those things more than God. Finding our greatest treasure in those things instead of the one who gave them. And so let's, let's ask it this way. Are you coming to God as a means to get something else that you want? Are you coming to God as a means to get something else that you want? Comfort or status or a better job or more money or what have you? Do you think that if you serve God or if you come to church or if you give your offerings or if you read your Bible, that God will then have to give you what you want, which is something other than him? Is God a means to an end? Or is he the end? Is he the ultimate end? The one thing on which our joy terminates. David said in Psalm 27 verse 4, One thing I've desired above everything else, and that's to be in the presence of God. Over everything else. To be in his presence. I want him. Having God is the point of everything. Everything. I know that's a big blanket statement, but it's true. Having God is the point of everything. It's the point of everything we do as a church. It's the point of everything we read in the Bible. It's the point of the Bible that you would have God. The reason Jesus came was to show us the Father and reconcile us to the Father. Give us a way to the Father. Remember, Colossians 1 says he's the image of the invisible God. He's showing us who God is. Jesus came and said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, and I am making a way to the Father. The whole point of Jesus' coming was so that we could have God. The whole point of his death and the gospel itself is so that we could have God. Listen to 1 Peter 3.18. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The reason he died was so that we could have God. The whole point of the gospel, reconciliation, forgiveness, so that we could have God. And brothers and sisters, the whole point of heaven, the whole point of heaven is that we would have God forever. It's the point of heaven. And the reason I mention heaven is because in the Old Testament, the promised land is like an Old Testament foreshadowing of heaven. Every time you see the Old Testament, that you see the promised land in the Old Testament, think heaven for us. It's an Old Testament foreshadowing of heaven. And the primary reason that we should want to go to heaven is that God will dwell with us. God will be there. That's where his presence will be. Much like Adam and Eve having unhindered fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden before sin came into the picture and separated them from his presence. You know, when we talk about heaven, often people remember the verse in Revelation 21.4 that talks about all the wonderful things about heaven. The fact that there will be no more crying, no more mourning, and no more pain. 
And brothers and sisters, those things are amazing. They, they really are. And we should not minimize those blessings. But most people find their greatest comfort about thinking about heaven in a verse like that because of all the, the, the absence of the negative stuff. But the greater promise comes one verse before that in Revelation 21.3. Listen to what it says. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about, that we might have and enjoy God forever. In an excellent book called God is the Gospel, John Piper wrote this. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? I don't know about you, but the first time I heard that, that hit me like a ton of bricks. Because initially your thought is, yeah, maybe I could. Because where's, where's our greatest treasure? Is it in Christ himself? Is it in God himself? Or is it in all the stuff that he can give us? Do we love God more than what he can give us? There's a wonderful illustration of this in the Old Testament. One of my favorite characters in the Old Testament is also one with one of the hardest names to say. His name's Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. You might not have ever heard of this guy. He comes in 2 Samuel in relation to David. At one point, David takes the throne and he's, he, he's asking around, is there any descendant left of Saul so that I might show kindness to them for the sake of my best friend Jonathan? Remember, Saul and Jonathan died before David took the throne. And David and Jonathan were just best friends. So he, he's looking for some descendant of theirs to show kindness to for Jonathan's sake. And a servant named Ziba pipes up and says, yeah, there's one, but he's a cripple. He's a, a lame man. He's, he's nothing. He, his name is Mephibosheth. And David says, you call him here right now. And David gives Mephibosheth all this land and all these servants and a, a perpetual seat at the king's table with all of his food. And Mephibosheth is like, who am I? A, a dead dog like me? What, what is this? And David says, it's unmerited kindness because I love Jonathan. And you're his descendant. Well, that's not the point of this illustration, though, because later, David's evil son Absalom stages a coup. He tries to overthrow David from the throne, his own son, his evil son. And David, for a time, for a temporary period, has to flee out to the wilderness. And as he goes out to the wilderness, Ziba catches up with him, one of his servants, and David says, where's Mephibosheth? Did he not come? And Ziba says, no, and he lies. He says, no, Ziba stayed back because he's loyal to Saul, actually, and not to you. See, he's lying because he's jealous of everything that David gave to this man, Mephibosheth. So he lies. And David believes the lie at first. And he says, well, because of that, Ziba, I'm going to give all of Mephibosheth's land to you. And I'm sure Ziba was quite, quite pleased with himself. But the coup didn't work out. And David and his men returned. And when they return... Mephibosheth finds David and he says, I'm so thankful you're back. And David 
figures out the truth from Mephibosheth's own mouth that Ziba was lying. And so David says to Mephibosheth, how about I I split the land between you and him? I'll split the land between you and and Ziba. And Mephibosheth replies in 2 Samuel 19, oh, let him take it all since my Lord the king has come safely home. You see? You see? He didn't care about the stuff. He cared about his king. That was his prize. That was his reward. That his king was there. That he got to be with his king. The whole point of heaven is having God. Yes, my friends, we long to see those who have already passed on in heaven, right? We long to see those that have died, those that have have loved us and we have loved. And I think, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I think there are even times when it will feel like that longing to see those people is stronger even than the longing to see God. And you might feel a little bit of guilt from that. Why, Why would that longing be stronger than my longing to see God? Well, it's, it's because we've never seen God. We've never seen God. But we have seen and touched and been tangibly loved by that person who passed away. But friends, this is only because we've never seen God. Your greatest joy when you get to heaven will be to stand in the presence of your creator and in the presence of Christ, his son, your savior. You see, it's easy to cultivate our love for someone who is right in front of us, who we can see and touch and talk to. It's much harder to cultivate your love for someone you've never seen or touched or even heard his voice audibly. But let me give you a great and deep encouragement from God's word from 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9. Peter, best friends with the Lord, writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you love Christ, God knows. He knows. And he rejoices that you love Christ because you haven't even seen him. And yet you still love him. And this makes God proud of you. He is a proud father of his children who hold fast to their faith in his son, even though they've never seen him. Brothers and sisters, God is lovingly inviting you to go deeper with him than you've ever gone before. To become one who has a burning heart for the Lord. That you would come to know him and his ways, that you would commune with him and spend time with him. And his promise is that if you do, if you pursue him and seek him and long after him, he will give you a happiness and a satisfaction that you have never known. And the happiness and satisfactions of this world will begin to fall away as nothing because they could never compare. I leave you today with Jesus' own words from John seventeen three in that great prayer of his To the Father, he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Right now, we're going to take some time 
of silent, reflective prayer to do business with the Lord individually, each one of us. I challenge each and every one of you to spend this time talking to God, pouring out your heart before the Lord, whatever it is, confession, pleading with him for more of himself, whatever it might be, however the Lord has laid his word on your heart, cry out to him now. Do business with the Lord in prayer. And after we have a time of silent, reflective prayer for individuals, we'll come back together. We'll have a time of invitation that anyone who needs to give uh, public response to God's word can do so. Let's pray for a few moments.